Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Glad you could join us. Oh, McDevitt here with Kieran and Ken. Hi, guys. Hello there, on. FIFA has been taking quite a bit of abuse today and for the last number of days, but particularly, let's just focus on today for the time being, for their latest PR tactic. Who among us, though, can honestly say hand on heart that we've never tried to shift the blame for one of our mistakes to a dead guy? Who's never can at least considered doing that when they're in trouble? I don't know, with their parents after doing something as a kid. Just blame somebody who can't, can't really defend themselves one way or the other. This started with a story in the New York Times yesterday that the previously unidentified FIFA figure who'd signed off on a $10 million payment to Jack Warner was Sepp Blatter's right-hand man, Jerome Valka. The story claimed that this put the money trail a lot closer to Blatter than had originally been known. FIFA have said no, this payment was authorised by the chairman of the finance committee at the time, Julio Grandona mm-hmm. from Argentina. Unfortunately, Ken, Grandona is way too dead to be able to comment one way or the other on this. Look, this is what Julio Grandona would have wanted. That man lived for FIFA. <laughs> and uh, he's continuing to serve them from beyond the grave. Uh, I, can't, I, I can't imagine that he would have wanted it any other way. You know, if only he was able to comment on this, he probably would have stepped up and taken responsibility for it. Uh, but as it is, he's he's still taking responsibility for it. And, uh, you know, what greater love. Mm. I mean, you know, the, the idea of flogging a dead horse is, you know, it's long ingrained, I suppose. But, I mean, what you're actually doing is you're flogging a former... Flogging, flogging a dead FIFA executive <laughs> uh, for FIFA's own ends, which, you know... I mean, you're absolutely right, of course. I mean, the man's dedication to FIFA and to, you know, the way that FIFA operates uh, was... It's it's on the public record for 40 or 50 years, so why not? I mean, if he can be of use from beyond the grave, then... then One of Seth Blatter's very best friends, Blatter said, upon Grandona's death a a year or two ago. Uh, FIFA actually came out with that statement. Then a letter emerged saying, no, 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 this this is a letter that was directed at Valka at the time. FIFA since, since come out and said, well, this, this doesn't change anything. Valka has nothing to do with this. Yeah, but unfortunately for FIFA, um, just shortly after they had issued their statement saying that um, uh, that Valka had, had no part in the initiation of this, uh, no part in the execution of it, that it was essentially, uh, you know, um, all done by Julio Grandona. Um, a letter then emerged, uh, which is from uh, the South African Football Association, uh, Dr. Oliphant at the South African uh, uh, Football Association. And basically what it says is, 
Uh, dear Mr. Valk, and the subject line says, U.S. $10 million promised by the South African government for the Diaspora Legacy Program. And it's a, it's a short letter. It just makes two points. Um, the first one is that uh, in view of the decision by the South African government that an amount of $10 million be paid to the 2010 FIFA World Cup Organising Committee South Africa, the South African Football Association uh, requests that FIFA withholds an amount of $10 million from the organising committee's future budget funding and therefore advances the amount withheld to the Diaspora Legacy Programme. So that's point number one. Please take $10 million from our future income that you're going to give us anyway. This is South Africa. This is South Africa, yeah. FIFA are going to give the South African World Cup Organising Committee a total of $423 million. They're saying, give us 413 and see that 10 that's left over? We want you to send it to something called the Diaspora Legacy Program. Over in the Caribbean. What is the Diaspora Legacy Program? Um, The Diaspora Legacy Program is something which, uh, I saw Marina Hyde tweeting, has absolutely no Google hits of any kind apart from in relation to this letter. Um, so uh, the Diaspora Legacy Program, is SAFRA requests, that's the South African Football Association requests, the Diaspora Legacy Program be administered and implemented directly by the president of CONCACAF, who shall act as a fiduciary of the fund. The president of CONCACAF in that case is Jack Warner. So what they're saying is we just, it's to be understood that Jack Warner is to be the only person charged with administering this $10 million. He is a fiduciary that is, uh, fiduciary being somebody who uh, takes care of money on behalf of others. Of course. Yeah. Um, he's going to look after the you, $10 million. Who else would you rather have in charge of that $10 million? $10 million. He'll, know how to, he'll know how to get the best uh, use out of this. And then the letter literally repeats the same two points, including the Diaspora Legacy Programme shall be administered and implemented directly by the president of CONCACAF, who shall act as the fiduciary of the Diaspora Legacy <laughs> Program Fund of US $10 million. <laughs> so, yours faithfully, etc. Now, the problem uh, with that for Jerome Valk is that it's addressed to him. Right. So, if this was the, if, if they were communicating to FIFA via him, he knew about this. And anybody reading that would have to at least scratch their head and go, what is this diaspora legacy program that only Jack Warner is going is the sole sort of uh, financial overseer of? This sounds a bit strange. What's it all about? Maybe if he googled it, like uh, Marita Hyde, <laughs> it would nothing. Nothing would have come up. Nothing would have come up because it was a, it was a it was a new initiative at that time. I mean, the South African Football Association are saying things like, "Well, you know, uh, it was a, it's a thing for like um, the kind of African um, diaspora community in the Caribbean." It was a kind of a fund, like a, a, you know, it's not a bribe. It's not like we were giving the guy $10 million just so that, in, as a thank you for voting for us to host well, the World Cup. of course, Cup. no. I mean, no, or, no, no one's suggesting that for a minute. <laughs> no one suggest- so, so this is the problem. You know, Valk, supposed to, be, supposed to be not involved with this, turns out that he at least knew about it or was told about it, was, was written to by the guys about it. They thought he was the man to talk to about this. The money was all transferred. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see where he goes from this point. And where Bladder goes from this point, because Valk is a big Bladder guy. And Bladder, it's difficult for him, because obviously this isn't, this isn't addressed to Bladder, but Valk is like his number one uh, right-hand man, you know, his, his number one henchman. Um, how many guys can you throw under the bus? <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're the kind of leader who just keeps throwing his followers under the bus, 
At what point did the rest of the followers who were kind of next in line start... They're actually going to stop the bus from moving. Yeah, the, I mean, bu- the bus... will actually get... get the bus is jammed. Yeah. <laughs> it's jammed. There's so much human wreckage underneath there at this stage. The bus is almost... The wheels are just... <laughs> no, it's not, you know... And Bladder's there still grinning and, and everything's fine. But at what point do the... Do the um, do the followers start to start to think, hang on, is this really the kind of leader we want to follow? Or the people who have been under the bus and, and perhaps escaped, still able to tell their story, uh, how much are they going to tell? Well, one of those men, Ken, is Jack Warner. Still telling the story. He's clambered from the wreckage underneath that bus and he was in full high and mighty mode over the weekend. And then I looked to see that FIFA has frantically announced 2015. 2015, this year, this year, uh, um, um, Olympic final in the World Cup begin May 27. If the FIFA is so bad, why is it the USA wants to keep the FIFA World Cup? Why is it they began games on May 27? May 27, two days be- before FIFA election. Why is it the US uh, uh, authorities sought to embarrass FIFA in Zurich? Something has to be wrong. I made the point to you over and over that all this thing has stemmed from the failed U.S. bid to host the World Cup. I, want, I said before I say again, the U.S. applied to host, to host the World Cup in 2022 and they lost the bid to Qatar. So just to go back to this earlier part of that clip, Jack Warner not impressed by FIFA's reported plans to stage a World Cup this summer in the U.S. <laughs> this summer, starting, it would have started by now, in fact, according to this story, to appease American officials. Three games, three games today, of course. Unfortunately uh, for Warner, that information came from a spoof article published by The Onion. Yeah. I mean, everyone's been spoofed. We've all fallen for these things. Usually it's on April the 1st that it happens, but in this case, a little bit later in the year. FIFA frantically announces 2015 Summer World Cup in the United States. Global soccer tournament to kick off in America later this afternoon, said the article. <laughs> After the Justice Department indicted numerous executives from World Soccer's governing body on charges of corruption and bribery, frantic and visibly nervous officials from FIFA held an impromptu press conference Wednesday to announce that the United States has been selected to host this summer's 2015 World Cup. We are thrilled to reveal that for the first time in 21 years, the World Cup will return to America with matches set to kick off today at 5pm <laughs> local time in Los Angeles, says FIFA President Seth Blatter. So I don't know if, if Jack Warner necessarily read, maybe he just scanned the text uh, he didn't go on, but it's certainly um, he he when he saw this story, he thought, "Well, there you go." Get me in front of a TV camera. Get me in front of a camera right now. I need. I must speak to my people. What was I? What was I telling you? You know, this exactly. This is exactly as I had suspected. The Americans have only been after one thing: getting that soccer tournament that they lost out to. And he he went on in that in that statement to kind of outline. He's like, you know, a big country against a small country a Muslim country, you know, and kind of playing on all of the the tensions that exist. Here's the rich, uh, spoiled United States uh, has flown into a rage because it can't get its way and now it's going to try anything to try and, you know, to, to grab back what it thinks should be his. And all of us in all the small countries, well, we know what the Americans are like. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, of course, Qatar is, I think, the richest country in the world <laughs> by, you know, GDP per capita. Uh, so it makes an unlikely member of this parade of underdogs that Warner is talking about. But, you know, I thought it was kind of interesting that a lot of what he says is quite persuasive to someone who's from a small country or the kind of countries that have complicated dealings with the United States. You know, the kind of countries where the, where the United States has a way of sort of getting involved is an activist partner. 
like say all the countries in the Americas, for instance, um, you know, in, in a lot of those countries, people might be like, well, you know, we all know what the Yankees are all about. Will his point not have been undermined by the fact that he was Quoted hoodwinked it. by a false, completely ludicrous article? Well, ludicrous is as, as ludicrous does. I mean, as they say, you know, the, maybe, maybe <laughs> what, what passes for satire in the United States <laughs> is easily imaginable as reality to, <laughs> to people outside the border. I mean, obviously, it, it, uh, it makes Jack Warner look, uh, as Roy Keane once described him, like a clown. Uh, but uh, if you take away the fact that he, you know, he was waving around this piece of paper as justification, all the all the other stuff, which might maybe sound paranoid, you know, to an American ear or to a European ear, doesn't necessarily sound that out there to uh, the kind of people who Warner is really speaking to. All right, we'll have loads more on FIFA in today's football podcast. On this show, Tom English of BBC Scotland is going to be on to talk about Glasgow's win over Munster in the Pro 12 final. And Murph, another Gaelic football match, another game that signals the death of Gaelic football. Has there been a... It's a, dif- it's a different kind reaction? of death, though. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, we were talking about the death of the sport. This is more the death of the organisation as a whole. There were really. too many scores in this game. Yeah. That's the, the the tyranny of of point score point and goal score. What do you think, though? It is a big it is a bit grim when you see a complete mismatch like that, isn't that? Uh, it is. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we've been watching these now for about 128 years, give or take. Uh, so it's a little strange that this game is the one game that's prompted all of the all of the belly aching. You know, um, obviously Longford, we're never going to win the game. Uh, what perhaps has raised a few eyebrows is uh, Jack Sheedy coming out, their manager, after the game and saying that he wanted to, this was the right way to lose, the honourable way to lose, um, by going pretty much man for man against, uh, obviously, a far superior team that we're going to win. But it it does at least prompt yourself to uh, prompt the question, well, does it really matter if Longford lose by 12 points or 18 points or 27 points as they actually ended up losing by? Um, they were going to lose anyway, so yeah. why not? Uh, why not uh, uh, go down playing the style of football that you played against Offaly two weeks ago? I'd be on that side of things. I don't think uh, if it's funny that um, most managers are getting criticised for being too defensive, and then you've got a guy who is going to lose a game anyway, sets his team out to play the way he feels football should be played, and as you say, the way that will most likely be how he'll approach the next game mm. in the qualifiers, and he gets. Somewhat pilloried for that, and for I don't know, pilloried might be a slight overstatement, but there's plenty of people saying that's completely naive. You shouldn't go out there and accept that you're going to lose by that amount of points. But everybody knew they were going to lose. Well, why not give it a bit of a shot? At least there were brief pockets of excitement. I was at Croker when uh, when Longford, and they did actually look quite dangerous when they got the ball forward early on. Now, obviously, when you're losing with that scoreline, eventually the whole team becomes demoralised yeah. and you do stop scoring after a while. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of strange to be honest. Uh, Longford had plenty of success. I mean. Again, like, and uh, this is the whole idea of it. I mean, it, it, what is success for Longford? I mean, if 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 it's a twelve point defeat, I mean, we've seen games like this featuring Dublin, where teams come completely with no other intention other than stopping, trying to stop Dublin, and for the first twenty minutes, like, oh, this is kind of tight, and then Dublin figure out, you know, okay, well, the, okay, he's not a very good footballer. Let's just attack down his wing. He's also not a very good footballer. We can probably make a if we move Jeremy Connolly in yeah, on him for five minutes. It's not necessarily any more entertaining. Or yeah, and then and then Dublin are six points up at half time, and then the second half is just unbearably dull, and Dublin end up winning the game by twelve or thirteen points. I mean, we've seen that. I mean, what, what Longford get from that? What Dublin get from that? Completely nothing, like utterly nothing. So, I mean, I I I 
I understand where Jack Sheedy comes from, and I actually appre- I appreciate what he tried to do, and I think that it's probably the right thing to do for from Langford's. I mean, if 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 he had told right guys, we're going to play twelve men uh, behind the ball. I'm going to ask three players to do a job that they've never done before. Uh, they're not going to be good enough to do it. They're going to get really frustrated, and then Longford don't even have the the fallback of saying, "Well, listen, you know, at least we gave it a rattle. We didn't give it a rattle. Uh, we played horrible football. We bored people to tears, and we got beaten by 15 points." I think it's easier to just say, "Right, well, Dublin have better footballers than us. Forget about it. Let's you know, let's play our qualifier game." Oshie McConville and Anthony Moyles have arrived. How are you, lads? Morning, Owen. How's things? All good, on. We're not going to try to dress up the weekend uh, into anything that it wasn't, <laughs> but there are things to talk about here, right? Jack Sheedy, well, uh, people are well aware probably of his the sort of philosophical debate that he sparked after the game. He was asked, was it, had he considered being defensive, parking the bus, to use that cliche at this stage, that was what was put to him. He says, no, don't believe in it, don't like it, I think it's horrible to watch. As a spectator sport, it's called football, so let's go play football to the best of our ability. Would you applaud being the camp that is applauding Jack Sheedy this week or would you be slapping him down a little bit for being completely naive, Anthony? Um, I think a bit of both on, really. Like we, we, we've, we've debated this numerous times here before about the fact that Leinster seemed to be the last province to grasp the nettle with regard to setting up defensively. Like, I mean, let's, let's move away from the blanket defence. Just actually setting up defensively. Like, I see... Longford dropped one man back in every now and again in front of the full back line, but that was it, you know. So they were on a hiding to nothing. It is naive by Jack, a fellow who obviously played for Dublin, who would know the Dublin players very, very well, who knows Jim Gavin very well, who would know what he's coming in to face. Um, and you can't, you have to give your, your team the best possible chance. Of, of, of trying to succeed in the game. And when you're playing Dublin in Crow Park, whether the debate about taking Dublin out of Crow Park, all those, this is the hand that you've been dealt. You've got a very good win over Offaly. Okay, build up a bit of momentum, but maybe try to change things. Um, now, it is difficult enough to change things, though, until we all of a sudden become a team that has defensive tactics and strategies. That, Like, I mean, Donegal have been honing this for probably seven, eight, nine years. Who knows? Maybe longer. So... You just can't do it overnight. And that was essentially what he was being asked to do coming into this game. I don't think he could have changed it overnight. I think they still would have got beaten and beaten well. But I think he would have probably kept a little bit more protection uh, in his defence and in his back line. But, uh, you know, as I say, he was on a hiding to nothing on. He really was. And, like, I mean, you're just looking at a situation where... We spoke a little bit about, OK, we think that the levels are improving all the time and that people might be getting a little bit closer. But it's glaringly obvious now that there's very few shocks anymore in, in Gaelic football. There's just, there's just not. Um, and what we saw at the weekend is, is just testament to, the, to, to that fact. Yeah, uh, I accept the fact that Longford have to do everything that they can to win the game, right? But they also have a duty to have the best year possible this year. And so from that point of view, I would have thought that, right, Longford say, we don't want to play this blanket defence. We, we, we don't believe in it. We, we just, it's not for us. And f- they've uh, beaten Offaly playing a certain way. For them to try and change it for Dublin would be to limit the defeat from, say, a 27-point defeat, which is what it was, down to a 12-point defeat or a 15-point defeat, where at half time there may be four points down. Like that's you know it's it's not like they've thrown away any chance they had of winning the game. Like they didn't have a chance of winning the game. So are they not as well just to say right? 
this is how we're going to be playing the first round of the qualifiers. So let's play like that against Dublin. And if we get if we get ten or eleven points, or if a couple of the lads chip over a couple of good uh, points in Crow Park, maybe they can take that into the next game and say, right, well, you know, what everyone expected to happen happened. We didn't play defensively. We set up the way we're going to set up. Let's just forget about it and move on to the qualifiers, which is what I think Jack Sheedy has done. I just think that the irony of the whole thing is that they played quite defensively last year against Derry, up in Derry, and won the game. And to be honest, looked really good winning the game. And I was absolutely shocked that they ended up getting beat by Tipperary the next day. In fact, they get, I ended up getting royally beaten by, by Tipperary, but... Morph's right. It, 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 does it really matter if they get beat by 12, 16 or 27? I mean, they're always going to get beaten, so if that's the way he wants to play a football, then go and play that way. But it's, it's just like, uh, Miles, you made the point that there's no shocks anymore, and there is no shocks anymore. I mean, we sort of, we can sit here like, okay, we might get one wrong, but we know basically who's going to win the provinces at this stage. The only, the only, uh, Provincial championships is worth watching anymore. Or the Ulster championship, uh, football wise, and the Munster championship, Portland wise. The rest of them, you can you, you know who's going to win them, or you can have a very good guess at who's going to win them. So, I mean, I don't know what. Look what, at all the games that are on TV uh, over the last couple of weeks and over the next couple of weeks. There are Ulster football championship yeah. games and Munster hurling championship games, yeah. and there's a reason for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and you see, you know, you, you open up the paper. You know, you hear you hear the interviews from the managers yesterday, and how many of them have said, "Oh, something needs to be done about the system." You know, like I mean, you Cheedy and you the Waterford football manager saying the exact same. Oh, something needs to be done. So, and that and that's going to continue. They're not the only ones who are going to say that over the next four to six weeks. Um, and people are hoping. I hear, uh, no, hopefully, Mead will give Dublin a game. Like, that's that's. That's terrible. Like I mean, that's only one team out of Leinster that may potentially give them a game. Um, like, you know, all the years I was playing in Leinster, you, you, you would assume you had a Westmead team that was that was decent, a Leash team that was good, a Kildare team, a Dublin team, and ourselves. So there was potentially one of five, um, you know, give or take, all through the two thousands that could win Leinster. You know, um, but now it's just. One. Well, one of the arguments was being made after after the game at the weekend. One of the criticisms uh, of Longford is that Dublin didn't benefit from that game. That there's nothing that they're going to take forward into their later championship outings, which is true. But as Murph was saying earlier, I don't know what Longford would have taken out of it if they'd been more defensive. And I don't think Dublin would have necessarily. It's not as though Longford playing a defensive game was going to necessarily set Dublin up for, say, an All-Ireland semi-final against Donegal or whatever it might have been. So, sure, they didn't take anything from that, but I think the only way to use that is to actually work out how you change championship structures as opposed to sort of having to go with Longford, Absolutely. who are going to lose regardless. <coughs> Absolutely, and I think the, the thing for Dublin is that <coughs> there's, a bit of, there's a bit more bite about Dublin this year because they feel as if they let themselves down last year. So, What's the best thing to do in that situation, Owen? The best thing to do is go out and show you know you show respect for the opposition by hammering them, mm. you know. And 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 uh, Dublin did that right from the off yesterday. And the thing I was I was speaking to Mick Deegan last uh, Saturday night, and one of the things I was chatting about was and I didn't get an answer, but one of the things I wanted to know was do they go through? Did they go through and analyze the Longford team? Or did they just say, like, look, this is a game we realistically should win by 20 points and go about it that way? I mean, they said that they take it seriously and take that team, they take Longford seriously, but 
really and truly, if you're sitting there and you're doing analysis and you're going through the Longford team, uh, like are the Dublin boys sitting there and going, like, is he really going to cause me a problem? You know, is is their corner forward going to cause me a problem? I, I genuinely don't think so. And I think, you know, the way Dublin need to go about it is that they need to step it up as it goes along. Anthony said about, about me, who are probably next in lane in Leinster, I think the, the stat is that when Jim Gavin took over, that the first year that they beat me by seven points, I beat them by 17 last year. Mm. So, like, nobody's getting any closer to them, you know. And, you know, we... we 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 tend to build things up as we go along, and we tend to build the the Mead Dublin game up when it comes along, and you know we we'll, we we'll think that people can get at Dublin, people can be be defensive or whatever, people can stay with them for fifteen minutes, but realistically, there's nobody going to touch Dublin. The only thing, the only problem that Dublin have is similar to uh, look. I think football has got more like uh, the FA Cup. Give people a crack at, at teams. I don't I don't disagree with that, but give them one crack. And that's it. You're gone. I mean, we need to change structures as that. That the likes of Longford get one crack at these teams, you know, and and if they're beaten, then they're gone. They're into a they're into a second tier or they're into a B championship or whatever. We so want. the qualifiers are no good for a team like Longford, even though, as you mentioned last year, they caught Derry on the hop. I don't think so because all all you're really doing is you're just prolonging the agony for for a lot of teams, and somewhere along the lane they're going to get a hockey in. You know, and what does that do for confidence? I just think that people teams get a crack at uh, at the big teams, one crack at the big teams, and then if they lose that, they're back into the second tier. Because the likes of Longford, I mean, they was never going to pull off a shock. But there's teams who, who could potentially, like the likes of Galway, could shock a Mayo. Uh, the likes of Armagh could shock a Donegal, but they're not going to progress after that. They're not going to go on and, and win in All-Ireland, uh, you know, after that. And I think the, the more we the more we talk about this, for me, Mayo win Connacht, uh, Dublin win Leinster, um, Donegal win uh, Ulster, Kerry win Munster. And you know what? Next year we're sitting here and we're still having the same conversation and we're still talking about the same four teams winning the provincial championships. Provincial championships... Walk in in respect that Monaghan won a, a provincial championship a couple of years ago, but Jesus, is is that the only reason why we're going to keep it going? Clare won a a, a, a monster championship what thirty twenty five years ago or whatever it was. Uh, so are we keeping it going just for that one reason? I mean, it's antiquated and it's time for it to go. Anthony, well, the question of always is, you know, you go back to the structures that were there pre qualifiers, and people would say. You know, there was always big teams then as well. You know, so there, so there was there was a there was a creme de la creme there as well. And you know, there were the, very bad teams also. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And the Leitrims and the Clares and the Longfords and everyone else. You know, exactly as you say. So the qualifiers were brought in to say, well, look, these fellas are training so hard; yeah. they deserve another day out. They deserve another hammer. Yeah, but what it did was it essentially brought the bigger teams who got shocked by. By something, or most actually, then I say of an Ulster team, so such as the Tyrone now, who said, "Right, lads, we go back now, we go through and we go through the qualifiers, and we'll definitely end up in a quarter final, and we're back into Crow Park. Then we take someone and we're into a semi final of an All Ireland. It has not benefited, and you know people can talk about this and talk about the structures and whichever way it's going to go. Something has to be done because players now finish, gone, and the first thing is the phone call comes from the states." and they head off to America, right? Mm-hmm. So different teams lose players. So you've after training, the league has no, has no 
emphasis. It has, it has absolutely no importance to anything. Like I mean, well, the, the, the league the, is, is, is the league is now a bit of a chance for teams such as Dublin or whatever to blood a few players or try a few different systems. But for most teams, you know, there's a lot of dead rubber games in the league. Yeah, well, see, the league is 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 weird because everyone pays only ever pays attention to Division One, where the teams care the least about yeah. the football. Yeah. And then you're asking uh, Longford or Leitrim or whoever, like the like those games are really competitive games where they actually find out who their best players are. You know, if you, if you talk to uh, Leitrim people, Longford people, the games they'll probably remember aren't the championship hockeyans. They're like, well, I was actually at three league games this year and they were really good. Yeah. And you know, and I actually sat down, I enjoyed the games and they were spirited and all the rest. It's just, unfortunately, there's 200 people at it and, like, you know... There's one reporter reporting on them for all of yeah. the media outlets. No one cares. I, I don't see that changing that, that much, though, say in your proposed structure, Oisin, where Longford lose this match against Dublin, then they go and play against Leitrim and whoever else in a subsidiary or secondary tournament. Surely that will end up, as Murphy says, like the lower divisions of the league, where there might be good games, and maybe it'll help them on a footballing basis, but there'll still only be the couple hundred people at them. Yeah, and they're not going to progress. So there's no definitive answer mm. to this thing. The only thing I, I want to I want to say about that is on is that you look at the structure at the minute. So Donegal, in order to get to a All Ireland quarter final, will have to have beaten Tyrone, Armagh, Derry, and Monaghan. More than more than like Derry or down and Monaghan. Kerry went in the training week this week. You know what I mean? In the <laughs> like, middle of June, yeah. like start of June. Like, like their yeah. championship is starting at a completely different. Uh, Donegal's championship, they had a peak for the seventeenth of May. Mm. You know, to play against Tyrone. Kerry were, you know, they were playing club football. They were easing themselves back into it. Getting good to a couple of games. Uh, James O'Donoghue coming back from injury a couple of games. And now they're going to the training week. You know, like, I mean, it's not like... Goal, many games of Galway going to have to play? Galway bizarrely, right? I, I remember Galway played Mayo, I think it was June 26th or something. And that was their first game of the championship a couple of years ago in... Uh, in Castle Bar, mm. and by June fourteenth, they'll have played three times in the championship yeah. this year. You know, just <laughs> completely ludicrous. But I mean, see, the thing is, really, that like there, there are those kind of isolated inc- incidents that you can <coughs> you can pick and choose. And say, Johnny Gall's run to the quarterfinal this year does seem, even by Ulster standards, very very hard. But as far as I'm concerned, like I have these conversations all the time with people saying, you know, God, like something has to change, you know, and. You know how like, how do you go about changing it? You know, like the the way to change it is to actually empower a group of fifteen people to say, right, this isn't a football committee where right you guys meet for nine months and say Eugene McGee's football development mm. committee, right? Like it seemed like it seemed like a great idea, you know, and they came up with great ideas. But what they actually did was they reported to Central Council. Uh, and the you know the central council had a look and go right. Well, yeah, but they didn't. Right. Uh, Who's, is, you know, is this going to pass Congress? No. no. So what's the point? You know. So the whole idea of the as far as I'm concerned, Congress is the complete elephant in the room. Right. Every suggestion to make the GA better, to make the championship structure better, is seen through the prism of will it pass Congress? And then even even all of these committees that are that are told to sit down and all the rest and and come up with solutions. They, all of their recommendations fall into two pots. The first pot is, right, it's not really what we want, but it has a chance to pass in Congress. And the second pot is, well, we can't really go 
after nine months of meetings with this <laughs> half-hearted thing that we think might pass Congress. So we're throwing a load of like really radical suggestions yeah. that we know aren't going like aren't done of a prayer. But at least when people come up to me in the pub later and say, "Well, listen, what the hell what are we doing do? for nine months?" Yeah. It's like, "Well, listen, we have this brilliant idea, but you know, should we knew it and never pass Congress? Yeah. Like, what we actually need to do is say." Here, here's 15 people, right? Whoever those 15 people are, give us suggestions and we'll actually act on it. We won't, like, put it to Central Council, then we'll put it to Congress. We will actually act on what you say so that their decisions actually... They, they, one, they'll carry weight, and one, they'll actually feel the burden of, right, the decision we make here, it's going to actually change things. Yeah. Because at the moment, no one has that pressure. No one, no one has that pressure of, like, right, yeah. God, if, if, if we don't come up with something here... We're going to be stuck with this terrible system Absolutely. for And the GAA need to years. empower someone, as Murph says, because, you know, it's, it's, it's not good enough to just be able to say, and I think it's lazy for people to say, oh, well, Jack, if you set up defensively yesterday, you would have had a chance. He wouldn't have had a chance. He still would have been beaten. And I still don't think, you know, I've seen Jim McGuinness's article today in the Irish Times, and he makes a valid point where he's saying there's kind of three tiers, mm. right? Um, and he said there's the traditional counties that would always play the traditional style. There's the other lads who have developed and are the top tier. And then there's a middle tier who he says are basically looking at defensive strategies, etc., and how to break these top tier guys down. <coughs> yes, some of them are, but they're still being bet. That's the thing. The middle tier counties. Yes. But were Donegal not a middle tier county until Jim McGuinness got his hands on them? Well, if you look at Donegal, you actually look at the individuals he has. He has some unbelievable yeah. players. Like, that's what people miss. Do people go, ah, yeah. no, Donegal. Sorry, Michael Murphy, McFadden, like, McBrarty. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go through them all, but yeah. you're talking about lads who would walk onto most teams. Like, Jim McGuinness did not make that... Michael Murphy, the player that he is. Michael Murphy was a player that he is because drew through everything that came through. They have an unbelievably talented. Yes, he brought them together and he did everything else. He had a strategy and he brought the ethos and he got the mentally right. Absolutely. But the bare bones of an absolutely fantastic team was there. Um, now, you could argue, but is the bare bones not with other teams? Like, would I look at Tyrone and say they have the same kind of individuals that, that Donegal have? I don't think Musicality. so. Do a lot of other teams have in, in Ulster? Do a lot of other teams across the country have? Like, that's why you look at a Mayo and you say, well, they've got some unbelievable individuals, but they can't get that over the hoodoo. My point is, is that this, it's fine having the tiers. It's fine having teams that are trying to get to the top table. Absolutely. But Jack Sheedy is training that long for teams to try and improve. He's not thinking, geez, we're going to win in All-Ireland. He's not even probably thinking, we're going to beat Dublin, as you say, Murph. Yeah. But he's trying to, what's a measure of success for them? So I think what the GA has to do is they have to give them the absolute op- opportunity to say, we are going to give you a measure of success. And that measure of success could be a be All-Ireland, it could be whatever. If you decide, three or your lads decide to go to New York, well... They go to New York. We can't do anything about that. But we are going to provide you with something that will give you that. Not, as we said, a second round, another qualifier game, and you get pulled against Tyrone in Tyrone or somewhere like that, and you get bet by another 25 points. Here's a question. A McGuinness going into any county in Ireland, is he going to have the same impact that he had in Donegal? And Anthony's right. They had the, they had the raw material. <coughs> I think that if Jim McGuinness was to go into, let's say, a Mayo, they could benefit from that. Mm-hmm. I think that they could benefit from the structures that he brings and uh, what he what he brings man management-wise and all that sort of thing. He's a possibility of getting them over the lane to win all Ireland. 
can I think of any other county in Ireland that he could do that with? No, because the raw material is not there. And I think that's what people miss with Donegal. Well, Cork? Yeah, well... Don't get O'Shea started on Cork. I mean, let's just, let's just wait till Jimmy, July. Jimmy, 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 Jimmy Gill is managing yeah. Cork this year, uh, yeah. say, for the next... Okay. Three years. You don't think they'd no? I do. I do. I think. I think they're Got another more county in there. Yes, they're they're another team that could definitely benefit from an outside manager and a McGuinness Lake figure mm. because they have. Sorry, let's just say they had the raw material. I'm not sure if they have now, but they would have had in the last uh, five years. They won the All Air in 2010. They should have dominated Gaelic football for the next five years. And, and uh, in actual that, fact, what they've done is they've yeah. completely regressed. But. Uh, but Jim McGuinness going into a, a Longford or a, or a Fermanagh or a, uh, an Antrim or something, it's not going to happen for for a team like that because they don't have the raw material. I mean, he can put in whatever structure he, structures he wants. And, you know, we can talk about defensive football in the paper and, and say that Jack Sheedy should have went about it a different way. We're not talking about the same. We're not talking, we're talking about chalk and cheese here. We're talking mm. about two completely different... Uh, ends of the spectrum when you talk about the likes of Longford and the likes of Dublin it's like Crawley Town coming to play Man United in the FA Cup of course they have a puncher's chance and they'll have they'll have that one day where you know everything will go right for them and, and they'll get that lucky goal or whatever it is and they'll get across the line but generally speaking they're not going to do that on a, on a, for successive years they're not going to do that uh, constructively over a period of time as I say, they'll cause a shock now and again every twenty or thirty years, but, but effectively, think, yeah. and I think even the incidence of that is gone. Gone, and less. Yeah. yeah. And really, if you're asking about progress, what what is progress for Longford? Long, like progress for Longford is through the league. Is yeah. to pr- get yourself promoted. You play against teams at your level in Division Four. You get promoted. You play against teams that are now at your level in, divi- <coughs> in Division Three. You get promoted. Like there's a lesson to be learned here that. The when you're playing against teams of similar quality, you do actually like it's worthwhile for you. It's worthwhile for your opponent teams, and it's actually worthwhile for fans. Fans will actually get involved if the structure is there, where you play a Leinster, you play a Leinster championship off in four weeks in May, and then you play at your level in championship, championship, and you forget about the league. Like exactly. the, like the the key thing here is that the league is a total joke. Mm-hmm. In that, like you care about it more in February than you do. For the final. But the scenario I mean, you raised, though, is pretty grim. That uh, despite uh, that, that a lot of people probably think along the lines of what you guys are talking about today, but that it's actually not going to change because no. of the overarching uh, structure within Jay, which is kind of strange when you think about it because they can make decisions. They made a decision on Sky that was hugely unpopular for a lot of people, and that didn't seem to have to go through Congress and yeah. didn't have to go through yeah. a million yeah. different Yeah, I mean, look, World Rugby. I mean, I've, I've used this example before, I think, on this show. But, like, World Rugby... They take a look every couple of years, like, right, okay, the game seems exactly. a little boring or the game seems yeah. a little open. What, what can we do? We get 10 people in a room, we say, right, what do we think will make the game better? Those 10 people sit down for like a week and they decide, okay, well, if you may move the offside line five metres behind the scrum or whatever, the game is better. That's it. I mean, that's a worldwide professional sport <laughs> that can do that with yeah. empowering 10 people. <laughs> but Eugene, Eugene McGee's committee, you talk about Eugene McGee's committee, but like the one thing they didn't address was the fixtures issue and, and the fact that of the structures. I mean, Well, they did address the structures in the second paper and they suggested, didn't they suggest uh, that there should be four provinces uh, the, the Four uh, conferences, but yeah. I mean, again, like it never even got as far as Congress. Yeah, but yeah. that was so all to do. That was all to do with having. Yeah, yeah. But like it still wasn't addressing the main issue, which is the fact that 
the poorer teams are still going to be playing against the, the you know the very very good teams and and there's no avenue for for those <laughs> once the league's finished right so let's say awfully win division four Armagh win division three there's no other avenue then for for success for those teams I mean that's how that's what the boys are saying about how do we gauge success for teams like that after that all right I do want to ask you both about so you, you mentioned physicality there and that the, Donegal obviously at the high end of that one but funny enough Kieran McGee I don't know if you saw these comments this morning he was talking yesterday and he was asked if Donegal present the biggest physical challenge in the game now and he says no definitely not I put Kerry and Dublin way above them in terms of physical contact Donegal are not even in the same ballpark you surprised to hear that? Oh yeah by your um, facial expression you, uh, you yeah, seem surprised yeah yeah so, uh, pop the cheeks <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's mind games I think is it? yeah complete mind games against who though? I'm confused. And well, ahead of, ahead of his next game. Yeah, um, that's that was at the 7 a.m. press conference on Monday morning. Uh, by the way. Yeah, yeah, early, yeah, early press conference. You don't sound like you're a fan. 7 a.m. press conference. Who gets up at seven o'clock? <laughs> yeah. when, you're, when you're probably up at six. <laughs> yeah, you, get there, yeah you, you do have to be up a little bit before. <laughs> Can't do it in bed. I'd say uh, maybe he's having. Yeah, like I mean, he's playing a bit of mind games. You know, the, the I, I think to be fair, like what McGinley has been doing for the last number of years is trying to convince people mm. that. Uh, Ulster football is actually being played by teams all around the country. I think this has been like a sort yeah. of repeat. This has been a. Uh, he brought in the Mayo Kerry semi final last year as well. Uh, wasn't the replay? It was particularly yeah. physical. He said he loved it, the lads being thrown over hoardings, all these kind of things. And he was saying, I know there wasn't a peep out of anyone about the physicality there. So it's, do you think that's what it is? It's just part of this idea that look. Let's let's not think of uh, the Ulster teams as the only ones who get. Yeah, and, and my one worry as well, Owen, is going into the <coughs> going into Donegal game from an Armagh point of view is that we're playing them in Armagh, which is a small, tight pitch, and the one thing we're going to struggle with is our physicality. So why not bring it up and why not make an issue out of it and have the referees? You know, yeah, alerted uh, to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. alerted to it. And although he's saying that Donegal aren't that physical, this is the that's the rub. Yeah, but they are. <laughs> <laughs> they are, and anybody who was at the uh, the Donegal Tyrone game as start as I say at the, uh, in the middle of May, like will will realise just how physical they are, and that's what I'm saying about you know if it was a, I actually think if Armagh were playing Donegal in Crow Park uh, in two weeks, Armagh would have a real real chance of beating them. The very fact is in the tape pitch in Armagh, I think that goes against us because they are hugely physical. Yeah. All right. We'll uh, we'll try, try to leave Kieran McGinley's mind uh, to another podcast. Maybe work <laughs> out, work out the whole thing. What's going on there? Listen, Anthony, brilliant stuff. Ushin, thanks a million. Thanks. Cheers, all. Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodward, statisticians, dietitians, and as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. Just get back to that point about what the weaker counties are. S- what's best for them and therefore for football as a whole because whatever way you structure it you're still going to have exciting games towards the end of a year between the best teams and it still there's a lot of, a lot of nonsense in how it is structured at the moment but you made the point that those league games are far more important to counties ultimately than the championship ends up being and I remember reading Damien Lawler's really good book yeah. Working on a Dream where he fought, followed the Waterford footballers for a year and that was the sense he got with them they had one massive game I remember over in London yeah. it was a real do or die job they had another league they had all these games that were massive and I kind of got the sense that by the time the championship came around well they weren't going to be able to do anything in it anyway and it's hard to get the lads to fully commit at those, in those counties for uh, an entire year as the boys were saying or as Anthony was saying lads just head off for the summer 
and all the rest of it. So probably you should get weaker teams playing competitive games against each other into the summer. But, I mean, that's been tried before. Ushin's suggestion that Tommy Murphy Cup covered that base to a certain extent. Weaker teams go into this secondary competition rather than into the qualifiers. And then that was scrapped. Uh, largely yeah. because I don't think those weak teams actually enjoyed it. lack of interest, you yeah. know. But see, again, you know, the Tommy Murphy Cup is seen, was seen by them maybe as an afterthought, you know, as a as a as as kind of a stop to them, you know. Whereas if you say, right, there is no national league. If you want to play intercounty football, here's the football you're going to be playing, and it's it's a scenario where they play in a provincial championship, and then there's an All Ireland championship. However, you want to divvy it up, and you and they actually get five or six games over the course of the summer. And it doesn't drag on for the whole summer. Maybe play it in, you know, like say a lot of those counties are hurling counties. So play, play it in August and September and have the final in, in, uh, before the Ireland football final um, on, the fourth week of, uh, on the fourth Sunday in September. Maybe that's the way to do it. Promotion and relegation then? I mean, you've got to give these teams a chance. Yeah. If, the, if one team is winning that tournament every year, yeah, surely they'd move up and they'd yeah, get back into qualifiers, again, like, et cetera. See, the thing is here, right, and as we've been saying there, we, you can sit down and draw up, a, draw up a, a Champions League-style format or any format you like. like what you're, it, that kind of isn't the important thing. The important thing is, what do you want these teams to be doing, right? And the, the best thing for Longford is to be playing against teams that are around the same standard as Longford. That, and like, that's obvious. Like, that's just a sporting fact. That you, the, the, the having teams playing against teams that are vastly superior to them doesn't really do them a whole lot of good. So if you can arrange a system, however you want to do it, where they play their games not in February, not in March, but play the games that actually matter to them in July, August, September then that's a good system. You know, which, however way you want to slice it, that's a good system. That's what you need to do. The, the, that book, is, it's such a... Uh, re, I really enjoyed that book, the Damien Lawler book, Working on a Dream. And it's, it was such a fresh insight into the mindset of these guys who actually... These are the big games. Going to London uh, on a weekend at the end of February, that's their big game. That's their championship. So listen to the players. The players have told you that. The, that's, the, that's the sport they want to play. So let's tr- try and invent a scenario where they play those games in summertime. Even when the bus gets lost, I think it got lost yeah. on the way. To, <laughs> yeah. It was a rather frazzled driver trying to get this bunch of Waterford lads to, to, to Roy Slip and time to play that one. Anyway, uh, the Jim McGuinness column was name-checked there by Anthony. That is in the Irish Times today and every Tuesday for the Championship. Well worth a, re- a read of that one. Coming up in the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast game. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What are you doing down here, you surely man? We'll continue to talk a little bit about FIFA, Owen, and um, this news about Jerome Valk. Um, which has uh, emerged today, and we'll talk to a few people about that. And we'll talk a little bit also about some club football. Rafael Benitez, not the Champions League final yet, and we'll do that on Thursday. Mm-hmm. But uh, Rafael Benitez joining Real Madrid, leaving Napoli. How did he do there? We'll talk a little bit about that too. Simon's popped over. Simon, how are you? Hey, how's it going? Uh, we usually focus on the Irish teams, but I think we've probably talked enough about almost all of them at this stage of the season. And Glasgow were the story of the weekend for the way they approached that game, I think. and the, Certainly, a Something we'll talk to Tom English now about in a minute, the, the joy that it brought to them. But they seem to be a bit of an example maybe for other teams looking to climb the ladder. Well, I think if Glasgow can do it, 
literally anybody can do it. I include the Italian provinces, include Connacht, um, Edinburgh, anybody else pretty much in Europe. Um, they've come from such a low base. They were the absolute whipping boys of, of both Europe and the Rabo Pro or the Guinness Pro. They've, um, say in 2011, they came second last. They were getting crowds of 1,000, 2,000 maximum. They were in a terrible stadium. They'd no history. They'd no structures. Um, they were just a kind of a forgotten team who were just in it because the Scottish RFU didn't really know what to do with them. <laughs> um, so in 2011, they came second last. Gregor Townsend takes over. In 2012, they make a semi-final. 2013, a semi-final. 2014, start playing really good rugby. Um, a couple of Fijians, everybody will have noticed, uh, pop up and just create this really expansive style of play. And then this year, they win it. And to keep playing the style of rugby you've been playing all season, to do that in the final, in pretty bad weather up in Ulster, and absolutely demolish uh, Munster. It was a win, but it was also a statement. And it was, it, as I was saying, it's precedent setting. Yeah, even against, as you said, in the final against Munster, I mean, the traditional idea is that the four, the team that has the more physical pack and wins that battle will probably win the day. It's, it's as though Glasgow didn't even need to fully engage in that side of things. They just backed themselves to be way slicker than Munster everywhere else and therefore won the game. Yeah, and they... They do it with an inferior scrum. In almost every game they play, they've the inferior scrum. But they've just worked around those weaknesses. And Gregor Townsend is obviously central to this. Um, he's signed players for specific reasons, not because they've come up or not because they think they need a bit of pace on the wings or whatever other teams have done. Um, he knows why he's signing a player. They've got these guys at really low um, cost and... They've been nobodies, they've had no profile, and then they've come into this system, been absolutely brilliant. Um, he's a really interesting character in that he was, he's one of the last truly world-class Scottish rugby players. Mm. And he's, he had that sort of philosophy as a player, as an out-half. He's brought that into the team, but he's one of these guys who's gone around the world. He's spoken to Joe Schmidt when Joe was at Leinster. He went down to Waikato Chiefs when they were winning um, the Super 15s. He went to the Queensland Reds when they won the Super 15s. Um, he's gone over to Stanford University and spoken to some um, psych sports psychology coaches there, the absolute experts in world sport about it. So, you know, we've heard about him through Glasgow, but he's done an awful lot to get to this point in his life. Well, BBC Scotland's Tom English is ready to chat. Uh, the players, I mentioned the players' reactions to Simon there, Tom. I just thought it seemed to me like they were so overjoyed with this. This was a real means in itself as opposed to a, a means to an end in itself I should say as opposed to a means to an end as a league can be for some teams it looked almost more like a Heineken Cup win for them Yeah I mean it's, it's, it was a huge huge moment in their careers it was the first time a Scottish club had ever won anything uh, they were beaten in the final well beaten in the final last year by Leinster beaten in two semi-finals before that so it's even though it's a youngish team they've been on a long road and the kind of sense of, of achievement, the sense of emotion was heightened by the fact that their leader, Al Kellogg, was playing his last ever game of professional rugby, and this was the first time he's ever won a medal. So all of those factors came into play. Would you, uh, it seems quite, it's, it strikes me that it's quite, uh, quite an achievement, particularly in the city that they're in, you know, it's, it's obviously football is king and they've managed to carve uh, something of a reputation, they're managing to make an impact, it seems, anyway, I don't want to overstate it necessarily, but they're certainly carving their own little niche there in Glasgow. They have, yeah, absolutely, I mean, obviously football is, football is king, um, Celtic and Rangers are king, but now, it's very interesting actually over the last year or so. Uh, the Glasgow team now are, are, are out, out, out um, performing in terms of crowds. 
some of the smaller Glasgow teams, we're talking about Partick Thistle, St Mirren, if you want to go further, a little bit further afield, Motherwell, Hamilton, all of those, all of those, they're all Premier League teams. Glasgow now are bringing in more more people through the gate than these than these other football teams. So they've they have they have really sold it well. You know, their their marketing and promotional team are very sh- very slick. They're they're on social media. Um, they're utilizing that very effectively. And of course, when a team wins, I mean that's the greatest marketing tool of all, isn't it? And and there's a premium now on getting a ticket. The last two matches at, at Scotston were sellout. Couldn't get a ticket. And once you once you tell people you can't get a ticket, they want a ticket all the more. <laughs> and it's um, it's a very interesting dynamic in Glasgow at the moment. Have they set a template, Tom? Do you think for almost any club? I mean, if Glasgow can come from second last in 2011, only ahead of uh, I think it was Treviso at the time. Um, if they can do it, then Connacht anybody can do it literally. Yeah, you need to make you need to make very good decisions, and you're right. I mean, in 2011, uh, they were 11th. Munster won the league that year. Uh, Glasgow are 50 points behind Glasgow in the league table that year. It's only four years ago. Um, what they've done is that they've appointed a great coach in Gregor Townsend. Uh, they've got the backroom staff, even though there's not a lot of them. They're very slick. Uh, they make good decisions in terms of recruitment. Uh, the players that they've brought in. Um, have have hit the target nearly every one of them, and they've made big contributions. But you know, we're talking about Josh Strauss, who's come in from South Africa, um, uh, Leonie Nakarawa, who came in from Saracens, almost kind of a bit part player for Saracens. He's now an, an iconic player for for Glasgow. So they've made very very good decisions. And yeah, if if Connacht make really good decisions in terms of the recruitment, uh, and they start winning matches, and they've had a good season, then. They absolutely, they can do it. They can do it, Glasgow. As you suggest, Tom. I mean, this isn't a flash in a pan season. They've had two semi-finals, then a final last year, and then the win this year. But th- there's one thing to win a final. You you can have a bit of luck. You can be dogged. There's certain ways finals can go, but to win it so emphatically with the exact style of play that you want to play, and to really demolish uh, Munster. I mean, that sets more of a marker even than just winning the thing. It does, yeah. I mean, to, to, to win would have been enough for them, but to win it in the, in the style they did was very, very special. Um, I think they learned a lot from last year. I think they were a bit cowed by Leinster last year in the final. They, they, were, they weren't going to allow, themselves, allow the occasion to get to them this, this year. They had, recently, they had started matches very, very poorly. They were very passive in, more, in recent games for the first half an hour, 40 minutes. They were determined to come out with all guns blazing against Munster, and they did. And they targeted Munster. Um, they targeted Munster's weaknesses, and and they went at them. And there's a there's a there's a great confidence in the team when you look at um, a Stuart Hogg who's 22 years of age. Um, when you look at a Finn Russell who's 22, a Johnny Gray, 21. Mm. Uh, you know he's calling the lineout. He's calling the Glasgow lineout, and he's and he's 21 years of age. You, you, you put in the experience of a Strauss and a Ryan Wilson and a Rob Harley into the mix, and it was a lovely, lovely blend. Uh, but steering all of this is, is Gregor Townsend, who is, who is a very clever guy, um, compl- a complete workaholic in terms of getting not just the things on the field right, but things off, off the field. He is, he, is, he is the coach, but he's also like a de facto chief executive as well. He, he performs many functions, 
But the thing that he's got right is obviously his team. He's constructed not just a team, but a squad. Um, and the squad really have gotten Glasgow over the line in a lot of matches this season. When the, when the first 15 haven't been performing well, he's sprung the bench. And that's where the recruitment comes in. He's, he's used about 50 players this, this season. And nearly all of them have contributed significantly to where we to where we got to last Saturday night. It's interesting when I hear you talking about Townsend there, they're, they're exactly the kind of words that were used to describe Michael Cech when he took over at Leinster. Maybe Cech is a more combative kind of character, but in terms of the bringing in a culture and acting almost like a chief executive in, in a lot of ways, as opposed to a head coach, I'm wondering how far that goes. Is uh, Gregor Townsend now going to be the the white knight for the international team in the next few years? Because we can't... We, well, we're, everyone's full of praise for Glasgow. We can't forget what happened in the last day of the Six Nations and how far behind Scotland still seem to be, despite a few encouraging performances this this year. Would people be getting behind Townsend in the next couple of years? No, I, I think people are behind Vern Cotter uh, as the head coach of Scotland. The World Cup is coming up, obviously. Scotland have an awfully long road ahead of them in terms of international rugby. I don't think too many people here are, are getting carried away in Glasgow's success and extrapolating from that that Scotland are now going to become a force in international rugby. I think Scotland will improve over the next two or three years, but it will take two or three years. They have some very good players coming through. And remember, Glasgow won, won uh, the Pro 12 without their, their two best centres, Mark Bennett and Alex Dunbar, both injured, both young, both terrifically talented players. So they'll hopefully go back into the mix for the World Cup. I would imagine they'll both be fit. Uh, so I think things, things are improving, even though the, the Six Nations was a complete whitewash and Ireland absolutely humiliated Scotland on the last day. I think over a period of years, Scotland will get better. Um, the problem is the other teams will probably get better as well. Uh, but I think at the moment, uh, everyone is uh, completely um, uh, behind Cotter. But there's no question that when Cotter leaves, that uh, Gregor Townsend will be the next one in. Tom English, great to talk to you as always. Thanks a million. Pleasure. So what do we think, Si? An unstoppable rise for Scottish rugby? No, I think this is down to the micro level of what Glasgow have done, going to the new stadium, sellouts. Gregor Townsend, as we said, um, brilliant recruitment and a little bit of a, a, a microculture growing so there. So can show what you can do at a at club level, but it doesn't necessarily uh, mean... Because I would have thought yeah. one really successful province should start having an impact on the national team. And the, uh, Scotland themselves weirdly felt quite good about this year's Six Nations, even the way Tom described it there. Even though they lost all their games and got hammered by Ireland, they seemed to kind of feel, well, we're, we're, we're building something here. Yeah, well, the, the other thing about Glasgow, a lot of their core players are Scottish, uh, Finn yeah. Russell's. As we're saying, is 22. Stuart Hogg is 22. Johnny Gray is 21. They should be the core of a Scottish team that goes ahead. But what I think what Glasgow have done, um, to do it in rugby, I think is harder than almost any other sport because, say in football, somebody like Porto can win, come through and win a Champions League and they can do it on rigid structures, on being quite defensive, on being quite boring. But in rugby, the better team with the better players nearly always wins. Um, so you need to get absolutely everything right in terms of structures, everything off the field, everything on the field. It's really impressive what they've done. Things aren't so rosy in the England camp at the moment. Uh, Dylan Hartley booted out of the World Cup squad for leading with the head on an opponent. Manu Tuolagi out of the World Cup after a far more serious incident assaulting two female police officers. And Danny Cipriani has been arrested, this is the latest one, on suspicion of drink driving. But Murph, the ORFU have today acted. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you know, you can you can you can overreact to these things, you know. But England England rugby know what they're doing. 
uh, on their uh, current vacancies page on their website, so this via balls.ie, there's uh, a job here, uh, Discipline Case Manager. <laughs> the RFU is looking for a Discipline Case Manager who will be responsible for the management and handling of all disciplinary cases at levels 1 to 4 and below in certain circumstances of the game in England under the supervision of the Head of Discipline. Now, this kind of thing... See, you know, I believe the job was... Uh, Probably advertised, advertised for a while, yeah. Uh, cl- uh, closing day is today, though. Um, <laughs> You'll be busy. Advertised yeah, since the last Rugby World Cup. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that time... Uh, in 2012, remember when Ireland were absolutely marmalised in the scrum by England uh, at Twickenham, mm-hmm. and then like two days later, the RFU have like an ad scrum in the newspaper director <laughs> like of scrum. scrum coaching. Yeah, and uh, I, similar to the situation with England rugby, um, you know the the the, the 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 train was on the tracks; it was rolling. They they they'd paid for the advertising space before the England game. It's one of these situations where. Well, what can you do? You know, you've you've paid for the ad. You it probably looks not great, con- considering. Yeah, the it looks timing, like you're being so appropriate. Would you take that role on, Ken? What's the specific title again? Uh, sorry, no, it's uh, the uh, discipline case manager. You need to be uh, have a strong legal background mm-hmm. check. Um, you need to, you know, object. You know, have a strong moral code. Yeah, check for Kennedy. Check for Kennedy again. Um, good sense of humour. No, not nece- not necessary at all. Actually, uh, what you actually need there is a str- uh, oh, an ability to make decisions. Yeah. You know, to make decisions and stick to them, unless of course they appeal. I know there's, there, to, there are two guys who should be good for this job. Either Ken Erty, I think I would be totally unsuitable. Or for the job. that IRS guy who's after FIFA. Um, Weber was yeah. the guy. I can't remember his first name. Rather Ray, intimidating Weber, character. Well, intimida- of, intimidating in an intellectual sense. He's not that Head of criminal investigations at the inter- uh, Revenue Service. Internal Revenue Service? Is that mm-hmm. what it is? Inland? Internal? Inland know. Revenue Service, isn't it? Yeah. One way or the other, the American taxman, the head taxman in charge of finding out tax dodgers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> tax dodger hunter. Yeah, finding he, that. He might have a more suitable background for this particular role. Murph, just before we go, the hurling news from the weekend was Dublin Galway drawing their game, but the replay is taking place in Tullamore as opposed to Galway it looks like it won't be on TV now because of an issue uh, that Sky are already screening a game that day yep. there could be a bit of overlap so RT don't look like they're going to be able to screen it which is all very disappointing for people in Galway I'm sure the worst fans in Irish sport get screwed over again Owen <laughs> of course I'm sure there are probably worse fans than Galway hurling fans I just can't think of them right off, off the bat Galway United? no well no, I think that's a whole other level, really. But, um, yeah, it, like it's a strange one because they went into the Leinster Hurling Championship and they basically said, right, well, yeah, okay, we'll let you in, but you can't have any games in Galway because, I mean, it's not Leinster. That would be ridiculous to play Leinster Championship games in Galway. That would be insane. So, obviously, we're not going to let you do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it is bizarre. It seems strange that that can't be fixed up at this stage. It's uh, the road. The road has improved immeasurably. I'd say even since Galway have qualified for uh, such sure a play. You'd, be, you'd be down in two, down hours. In two hours. So Galway people essentially are now feeling like you know the last couple of guests to be invited to a wedding. We've all been in that situation. You're not really mates with the people getting married. But oh, you're, you're just they sending, squeeze you onto the invite you're, list. You're just sending out the invites now, like two weeks before the <laughs> wedding. That's <laughs> a little tight, isn't it? You can't <laughs> no, quite no, shake the just, feeling that you're in there. Just you're, just you're two. You're in there, but you're not really a part of everything in the yeah. same way that some of the other people there are. Listen, you should just be glad to get your invite to play in the Leicester Championship. Don't even think about hosting a game, all right? Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Simon. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Thanks Ken. For listening. Thanks, Thank Simon. Thank you, Simon. 
we'll have the Irish Times Second Football Podcast out later today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.